You are listening to audio from Redeemer Church in Midland, Texas. Redeemer Church is a gospel-centered missional family. If you would like to get more information or donate to this ministry, please visit www.redeemermidland.org. Amen, amen. Love that. Love that video, band and David. Thank you for leading us in that time of worship. Uh, We're going to talk about the greatness and the awesomeness of God that we just got to sing about this morning. So I'm excited about that. I want to say first, good morning, Redeemer family. It's good to see your faces. It's good to be here with you, to worship with you. If you're joining us via the live stream, we want to say welcome to you. We're glad that you're able to take part in this service uh, through the live stream, and we hope to see your face soon. But welcome. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, my name is James Valet. I'm the discipleship pastor here at Redeemer and church planting resident. And I always get excited at the opportunity to preach. I'm always honored uh, when Jason asked me to preach. And I'm especially excited today because we're hopping back into the book of Romans, as the video just told us. We'll be in Romans chapter 11. If you want to turn there in your Bibles, that's where we're going to be. And uh, who is, whoever is keeping tabs on difficult preaching situations, I just want it noted Uh, that I have to follow Pastor Jason's What If series, which was awesome. Like, what if we really viewed God as Father? What if we really were generous people with our time and resources? And what if we really had deep friendships with people who loved us and cared for us? That's just hard to follow. I want that noted. And then I also want it noted that I've got 30 minutes to talk about the entire chapter, Romans 11. So whoever's keeping those tabs, please note that. I'm kidding. Jason gave me plenty of time uh, to know that this was coming, so... But I am excited about it. Before we review kind of what brought us to chapter 11 in the book of Romans, I just want to ask you to strip away, like, imagine in your mind for a moment that we're not sitting here in church in the Bible Belt, okay? Just imagine that, that, that we're somewhere else. Take all of that away, and I want to ask you, like, have you ever asked yourself the question, what in the world is God doing like, have you ever had something going on in your life or in the life of a loved one to where you're just like, God, are you, what are you doing? Have you ever asked yourself the question, is God real? Like, if he is real, can I trust him? Can I really trust him? Can I really trust him with my now, like my life now? And can I really trust him when I die? Can I trust what he says is true? I think some of us may hesitate to say, oh, yeah, I have those thoughts all the time, because that's a no-no in the Bible Belt and in church. Uh, But I think if we're being honest, we would all say, like, yeah, I've asked myself some of those questions. I have as a pastor in pastoral ministry. There's been times that I've had these thoughts come in, like, is this even real? And they're fleeting thoughts now, but that's just part of being human, um, so I just want to say that's, first of all, that's, that's normal to have those thoughts come. And now when they come, they're, they're very fleeting. It's not okay to stay in a place of perpetual doubt and perpetual questioning of God and is he good and can he be trusted. Um, but it is normal to have those thoughts come into your mind, even as a believer. I had a conversation with one of my sons recently where this kind of, kind of came up. Uh, he, was, you know, he was acting out in a way, but I knew that there was something deeper, there was a deeper reason that this behavior was, uh, a reason why this behavior was manifesting itself. And so through talking to him and asking him questions, I came to find out that he was terrified 
of death. I mean, like it's normal to be scared of death. Like nobody really looks forward to that. Death is the enemy. Like I get all of that. But I mean, he was, he was petrified of dying. And this particular son had professed faith in Christ and we've seen fruit of the spirit in his life. And so I wanted to assure him, like if you've trusted in Jesus and you're a believer, you don't have to fear death. And I discovered like at the root of this, what he was struggling with was like, who is God and can I really trust him? Like, can God really be trusted? And so I wanted to assure him, I was like, man, you can trust God. Like, let's look back at history and let's look at the Bible. You can trust God, man. Look how awesome and big and powerful and wonderful he is. You can, you can trust God and he can help you overcome anything. Unfortunately, it's not only my son that is paralyzed by fear of death and just wondering, can I really trust God? There are thousands out there floundering in their faith. Maybe you in here, maybe you watching on the live stream, just floundering in your faith or lack thereof, wondering, can God really be trusted? Unfortunately, American Christianity, American evangelicalism has done our, 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 the church a disservice, uh, I think, over the past 30, 40 years in an attempt to make God more palatable They've presented, they've preached a God who is much thinner and flakier than the God of the Bible. And many want to hear that. You know, it's like the pendulum swung. You got the hellfire and brimstone, and now we've swung over here to God as love only. That God wants to change your life. You just got to let him. He's waiting on you. God's waiting on you. God needs you. That's the message that we've been told. That God is not the God of the Bible. That God does not fill my heart with awe and wonder. Does, that God does not fill my heart with courage to go serve him. That God leaves me wondering, like, oh, man, like, does he know what he's doing? Is he able to change any of these things that are going on with my life? Is he really in control? That's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is a warrior. He's a judge, he chooses to do whatever he wants with his creation. He's fascinating. He's the most powerful being in the universe. He's terrifying in a good way. Men encounter God's angels and they're terrified. Men freeze and act like dead men when they encounter God's servants. Like how much more awesome and incredible and terrifying in a good way is the God who created them. Like God is big and vast. He's faithful. He can be trusted. He keeps his word. He rules over everything. That's what this chapter is going to get to. That's what Paul is going to get to in this chapter. As we overview it, we're going to see if this chapter deals with Paul beginning by providing assurance that God can be trusted. He says God can be trusted. And then he invites us to like marvel at this plan, this brilliant plan of salvation that God came up with. Just marvel at this plan of salvation and marvel at the character of the God of the Bible. Because he knows when our, heart, when our minds are informed with those things, when we know those things, then we'll have faith that can overcome all doubts. We'll have, we'll have courage that can overcome all fears. And our hearts will have fuel to worship God forever. 
And so that's the point. That's the main point. If I was going to say the main point of Romans chapter 11, I would say it's this. Minds informed that God is trustworthy and brilliant and vast will lead to hearts inflamed with awe and courage, able to overcome any obstacle. I'll say that again. I believe minds informed that God is trustworthy and brilliant and vast will lead to hearts inflamed with awe and courage, able to overcome any obstacle. And we're going to see that in Romans chapter 11 this morning. I'm going to bring us up to speed where we've been. If, if you come to our church anytime after last summer, or if you're like me, uh, you just need to be reminded of how did we get to Romans chapter 11. I want to give a brief review Seriously, under two minutes, I'm going to give a brief review of how we got to chapter 11, what Paul has been doing in this letter, the book of Romans. Here it goes. So Paul wrote this letter to the church in Rome to explain to them the gospel of the good news of Jesus that he preached. In chapters 1 through 5, Paul establishes that everyone is a sinner, born in sin, in need of salvation, in need of justification, and that only comes through faith in Jesus, not our good works. That's what he establishes in chapter 1 through 5. In chapters 6 through 8, he switches from talking about salvation to talking about sanctification. He says, okay, you've trusted in Jesus. Now you're on this lifelong process of becoming more like Christ, walking in the Spirit. And then in chapters 9 through 11, he really pivots and focuses on kind of like, what about the Jews? Really, I think chapter 11 is him or 9 through 11, is really Paul talking about the last, last nine words of Romans 1.16. We all know it, or we should know it. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, the Jew first and to the Greek. So like nine through, chapters 9 through 11, he revisits this. Like, well, what about the Jew? If, if the Jews are God's chosen people then why are there so many Jews that don't believe? Why are all these Gentiles believing? Did God fail to keep his promise? He promised to reconcile the Jews, his people, to himself. Did God fail to keep his promise at the core? Can God be trusted? Can I trust God? So let's dive into it. Let's get into chapter 11. There's no way I'm going to be able to read every verse, so rest easy. I'm not going to attempt that. But I did, the Baptist in me broke it up into three sections. So, like, the first section is just kind of this trust God. Paul assuring us that we can trust God in verses 1 through 10. The second section is, like, marvel at this plan of God, verses 11 through 32. And then the third section is just live in awe of God's vastness. And that's 33 through 36. And I want to show how each of those sections informs our minds And then how that will inflame our hearts with courage to serve and live for God and worship God. So section one is trust God. I'm going to start reading in Romans chapter 10 verse 21. The last verse of Romans chapter 10, I'm going to read through Romans 11 chapter 6. So just one verse up from the beginning of Romans 11. He says, but of Israel, he says, all day long. God says this, all day long, I've held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. All day long, I hold out my hands to the Israelites, and they're rejecting me. So then Paul asks, I ask then, has God rejected his people? 
By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have, the Israelites, the Jews, they've killed your prophets. They've demolished your altars. And I alone am left. And they seek my life. And what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at this present time, there's a remnant chosen by grace And if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. So Paul's anticipating this question. He says, if God's held out his hands to the Jews, but they've persisted in disobedience, then has he finally rejected them? Like, has he gone back on his word? He promised to save them, and now he's changed his mind and and decided not to save them, not to reconcile them? They seem to be the ones that are most opposed to him. Did God fail to keep his promise? Like, do you hear it? Like, can God be trusted? Can God be trusted? The answer is yes. And Paul says, no, like God has not rejected his people. He didn't promise to save them and then change his mind and now rejecting them. And let me show you, let me show you how you can trust him. And Paul gives us three ways, three reasons why we can trust God. That he's not broken his word. He's not broken his promise. The first one, Paul shares his personal story. He says, like, all of Israel's not rejected. God hasn't rejected all of Israel. I'm an Israelite. I'm a Jew, and I'm saved. Paul says, I'm a son of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin, and God saved me. So he couldn't have totally rejected all of Israel. And then he draws our attention. He talks about Old Testament salvation and New Testament salvation. He says, God has always been the same. He's never changed. He can be trusted. The Old Testament, he points us back to Elijah In 1 Kings chapter 19, he says, God has not failed to keep his promise. He's always had a remnant. The story of Elijah is fascinating. I want to kind of summarize it. You can go back and read it. 1 Kings chapter 19 is where kind of this is all at. But Elijah has been like crushing it as a prophet. Like he just went toe-to-toe with 450 prophets of Baal all by himself. These guys build an altar. they, They kill a bull and they put it on the altar. And 450 prophets like start acting like fools, begging their lowercase g God to send down fire from heaven and consume this bull. They're cutting themselves and yelling and screaming and Elijah's using sarcasm to like get at them. And then Elijah goes, pour some water on it. Pour some more water on it. Pour water on it three times. In fact, like dig a trench around it and pour water in that. Like cover the thing in water. And then he prays this simple prayer. Like, God, make yourself known as the God of Israel, and fire comes down and consumes everything. Fire comes down from heaven. God answers his prayer, consumes everything. The Israelites are all pumped. They go kill the 450 false prophets of Baal. Ahab, the king, runs back and tells his wife Jezebel, guess what Elijah just did? He just killed 450 of our prophets. And Elijah, instead of like having a heart full of courage and like standing there and like, look what God just did, he like runs off into the wilderness and pouts. He runs off into the wilderness and pouts. And this is, what, this, is what Roman, this is what Paul quotes in Romans 11, is this section where Elijah's pouting, like immediately after this. Elijah tells God, I'm the only faithful Jew left. Every other Jew has turned their back on you and destroyed your altars, and they're going to even kill me when I go back. And God says to Elijah, like, Elijah, calm down. Like, 
you're cool, but you're not that cool. My plan is not contingent upon your success as a prophet. Like, I'm God. I said, I have, you're not alone. Get up, go back to work. You're not alone. I have 7,000 people who've not bowed their knee to Baal. So he's saying in the Old Testament, Paul's reminding us in the Old Testament, like, God has not rejected all of Israel. There's an Israel within Israel that is trusting in Jesus and that is being saved. All of Israel is not rejected. And he says that's how it's always been. That's how God did it in the Old Testament. I have this remnant, which means a small group within a group, like he has a remnant of 7,000 Jews that he's kept for himself. And then he says the same thing is going on in the New Testament today. Verses 5 through 7, he says, So too, at this present time, there is a remnant, a group, chosen by grace. Israel's claiming that they failed to obtain it. People are saying you've rejected the Israelites. No, the elect within Israel, the remnant within Israel has obtained it. And the Gentiles, the elect of the Gentiles have obtained it. God has always had a remnant chosen by grace. He can be trusted. He saved me. I'm an Israelite. And God can be trusted. So Paul shows us those three ways. I think it's interesting to think about how Paul starts out sharing his personal, personal testimony too. And I just think about that. And I think that's a good question for us to ask ourselves. Like, are we ready to share our story about how we came to know God? Like, are you ready to share your story about if somebody asks you, what's different about you? And you say, Jesus. Man, I trusted in Jesus. This is how my life used to be, and this is what God has done in my life since then. Paul was ready, ready to share his story. Are you ready to share yours? There's power, there's power in a testimony. You don't want to make it all about yourself. You want to make it about God. I think about my testimony, and it's effective in talking to people who think they're too far gone, too sinful, too evil, too dirty, too wicked, been just way too far out there for too long. There's no way that God could ever save me. And I'm like, well, hey, he saved me. He can save you. He saved me from all of that darkness, and he can save you from it as well. So that's the power of a personal testimony. The point is God can be trusted. You can trust God, knowing that God has not broken his word. God has not failed to keep his promises. God is still operating like he always has, should reassure us that God can be trusted. That's verses 1 through 10. Next, Paul invites us, after he assures us that God can be trusted, he invites us to marvel at God's plan of salvation, this brilliant plan that God has come up with. Verses 11 through 32, this section, contains some fascinating and deep realities and concepts, and there is no way I'm going to have time to talk about them all. But again, I just kind of want to boil it down to can God be trusted now and in the end? That's what Paul talks about in this section. I want to hit on the main, the main pieces of God's plan that are brilliant. The, the main three parts, again, the baptism, he broke it down into three. Three parts of God's plan. And this is kind of what Paul lays out. He talks about Israel's stumbling. He talks about the Gentile salvation. And then he talks about Israel's future. He's like, man, just marvel at this incredible, brilliant plan of God. So I'm going to start with Israel's stumbling. I'll pick up Romans chapter 11, verses 11 through 12. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? So like as Israel stumbles over Christ, he's he's the stumbling stone, the stone that they're stumbling over. 
So is that stumbling so that they might fall like forever, ultimately, all the way away from God? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? So interesting. So here, Paul clears up the the past and the present of Israel. They have and are stumbling over Christ, but they're not stumbling so that they might fall ultimately. There's a purpose in it. There's a purpose in it. God is working in and through their past, past and present stumbling to bring in the Gentiles. And then he's using, and then like all according to his plan, as the Gentiles come in, Israel gets jealous. It creates this envy in them. They saw what was happening with the Gentiles as they're excited and coming to faith. And they get, they feel an envy. And most of the times we think of envy as bad. Like jealous, like jealousy is a bad thing, right? But not all the time. I love John Stott, what he says about this envy, this jealousy that's created in Israel. I'll put this quote on the screen so that you can read it along, read along with me. This is what John Stott says. He says, not all envy is tainted with selfishness because it is not always either a grudging discontent or a sinful covetousness. Whether envy is good or evil depends on the nature of the something desired and on whether one has any right to possess it. If, if the something desired is in itself good, a blessing from God, which he means for all of his people to enjoy, then to covet it, to envy it, to envy those who have it is not at all unworthy. This kind of desire is right in and of itself. And to arouse it can be a realistic motive in ministry. So think about that. Like gospel envy is what I want to call that. Like gospel envy. It's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. So does your life create gospel envy in other people? Do people see the way you live your life and the way you act at work and the way you treat your employees or your bosses and the way you act at home? And does it create like a gospel envy in them? Man, I want to be like him. I want to be like her. She's different. Creates a gospel envy in them. Married people. Does your marriage like so display the self-sacrificial love of Christ and the relationship between Christ and his church? Does it so display that, that people see that and it creates a gospel envy in them where they're like, I want that. That's different. This is what Israel saw when the Gentiles came to faith in Jesus. This is what God said he was doing with that. The Gentile salvation is the next part that Paul talks about. He talks about kind of how God saved them. He gives this picture of a tree and like a root and grafting them in. And it's, like I said, I'm not going to be able to talk about all of it, but he talks about how the Gentiles should respond to that. So Romans 11, 13 through 22, he says, Now I am speaking to you Gentiles. I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, Gentiles, although a wild olive shoot were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you, 
If you are, remember, it is not you who supports the root, but the root that supports you. So do not become proud, but fear. For God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note the kindness and severity of God. Severity severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. Fascinating section of scripture. Again, it's interesting. Paul is saying, Gentiles, look, the Jews are important. Like Israel is important. The only reason that you're able to be saved is because of them. I think it's fascinating. This chapter doesn't mention Jesus, Christ, or Messiah one time. It doesn't come up one time. But we know that salvation came through the Jews. Jesus was a Jew. The only reason the Gentiles can be saved is because of the Jews. It's the only reason they're connected to the root now, so be grateful for them. Don't look down on them. Don't look at them with con- dis- judgment. So I, I, I love to sum up what he says like this. He's saying, you need them, the Jews, and the Jews need you. It's kind of this picture that he's painting here. The nutritious root needs the wild shoot. And the wild shoot needs the nutritious root. That rhymed, and I did not intend for it to. If somebody gives me a beat, I could rap that. The nutritious root needs the wild shoot, and the wild shoot needs the nutritious root. The Jews needed the Gentiles. The Jews see the excitement and see all that's happening, and that these people that were once far off are now like brought near and have a real vibrant relationship with God. They needed that. And the Gentiles need the Jews. For nutrition, the Jews have all of the historic promises of God. Justification by faith, this wonderful Christian doctrine, started with Abraham, a Jew. It's like, Gentiles, you need them. You need the nutritious history that they have. You need the Jews. They need you and you need them, so stay humble. Stay humble. Verse 22, he says, note the kindness and severity of God. Severity towards those who've fallen and kindness to those who are saved. Provided that you stay in that kindness, that you stay humble, or you too will be cut off. Another like fascinating passage of scripture. How can we know if we're continuing in the kindness of God? How do we know if we're not cut off? How do we know if we're staying humble? Tim Keller says this, the only way we know that God's sovereign love is upon us is that we continue. We persevere in seeking to be like Jesus until the day we meet Jesus. If that continuing disappears, if we start to live for ourselves, if we start to live in sin or start to rely on our own performance for our relationship with God, then we will and we should begin to wonder if his kindness is upon us, if we were ever chosen, if we were ever part of this remnant. So are we? It's a good question to ask ourselves now. Like, am I staying humble, thinking about this remnant, being grafted in? Am I grafted in? And I, am I continuing in the kindness of God? Am I continuing in that daily, humble, relying on God for everything, aware of my need for him every day? 
Not looking down on people who seem less godly than I am. Not looking down on people who seem more godly than I am. Like, am I continuing in the grace of God and the kindness of God? Last thing he talks about is Israel's future in this section. So then he points to the future. This is the third part of God's brilliant plan. Like, all of this is fascinating. Romans eleven twenty five through 29, he says this, Brothers, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards to the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Again, like God can be trusted. The gifts and callings of God are irrevocable. It says all Israel be saved. Um, that means all without distinction rather than all without exception. It says all Israel be saved. The Israelites that reject Jesus, he's not talking about them. He's talking about all the Israelites that trust in Jesus. A large number of them will experience salvation because of this. And this is all part of God's plan. Let your mind marvel at that. Verse 29, God made a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he'll keep it. God can be trusted. He's always had a remnant, and he always keeps his promises. Paul says just like marvel at this plan of God. He can be trusted. He's not rejected. Israel has not gone back on his promise. Look at how fascinating this plan of salvation is, how complicated it is, how he brought two people that were bitter enemies, and he brought these two people together into a thing called the church, like marvel at this plan of God. And as our minds become informed with this, we should be humbled. We should also be filled with awe and courage. God is magnificent, he's brilliant in more ways than one. That brings us to the final section, verses 33 through 36, and that would just say, live in the vastness of God. I could not, I've labored over this word for so long this week. It's like bigness, vastness, uh, incredibleness, awesomeness. Like, how do you describe this? You can't. I just couldn't. Vastness seemed to capture the idea of what I was trying to say, but he says, just God is just enormously big, mind-blowingly big. You have no, I mean, we can't fathom how big our God is. Listen to what he says. After Paul talks about this plan of, like, what about the Jews? And, you know, can God be trusted? And the Jews are grafted, G- Gentiles are grafted in. And all of this marvelous, complex plan of God, it's like Paul just explodes at the end of chapter 11. He's still got four or five chapters left, but it's like he, he's done. He's like, I just have to say this. Oh, the depth. Look at verse 33. Oh, the depth. I want to preach for four weeks on those words. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Or who has given him a gift that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Seems like he's done, like done with his letter, but he's not. Still got four or five chapters left. 
It was beautiful. It's great. You want a section of scripture to memorize, to fill your heart with courage? Memorize this, Romans 11, 33 through 36. Some of my favorite verses in all of holy scripture right there. Oh, the depth. Oh, the depth. God has deep riches. He's trying to show us, like, God is trustworthy, he's brilliant, and he is vast. In these verses, Paul, like, gives us some things to talk about the vastness of God. He's deep in riches and in wisdom. Verse 33, God is rich. He owns everything. Like, Elon Musk, who? Like, God owns all that. God owns this world. He created it. You look at night, look at the stars. God owns all of that. God owns every solar system. He's rich. We can't fathom the depth of his riches. He's wise. His knowledge, he, every piece of information that exists, God has that in his mind and he always has. There's nothing that God does not know. His wealth and wisdom are unfathomable. No one can give him counsel. No one can say, you owe me, God, because everything comes from him and through him and to him. Everything comes from God. He's the creator of everything. All truth, God created it. All beauty, God created it. Everything, everything comes from him. Everything is through him. He's sovereign. He rules over his creation. Like everything that has come to your life, if it's suffering, it's passed through God's almighty hand first. If it's success, it's because God in his providence has gifted you with skills and put you in circumstances sovereignly so that you could succeed. It's not your own. Like that's how big God is. All things are from him and through him and to him. Where's everything ending up? Where's all of this going? What's the purpose of all of this? It's to give God glory. All things come from him, all things are through him, and all things are to him. God is vast, big, magnificent God. So how does this, how does this vastness of God, knowing that God is trustworthy, knowing that God is brilliant and just unfathomably huge and deep, how does that fill our hearts with courage to like go into my workplace or when I'm out with my friends or when I'm with my family? How does that fill my heart with courage to serve God? Mine's informed, if my mind is informed that God is thin and shallow and flaky, those, the the people who believe and hold and have a God who's thin and shallow and flaky will be the first to go when stuff hits the fan in America with religious liberty. Those will be the first to go. You have to have, we'll have to have a God who's big and deep and vast and magnificent for us to have courage to endure. So how does it give us this courage? Pastor Jason preached this beautiful truth a few weeks ago in the sermon, like what if we really viewed God as our father? What if we really viewed God as our father? Christians, like this God we just talked about is your dad. I love to hear little kids talk about their dads. It's hilarious. There was a conversation a few weeks ago that took place at my house. Uh, Pastor Chase's son, Gabe, was over playing with our son, Seth, and just randomly, like they were quiet, playing with some toys, and then Gabe just bursts out, my dad's a Power Ranger, and he can beat your dad up. (laughs) And uh, Seth reassured him 
that his dad is the Yellow Ranger and that, that uh, he said, Gabe, your dad is the Yellow Ranger. My dad is Batman and he can beat your dad up, <laughs> right? I remember when I went uh, years ago when Jameson was little, I remember him saying, my dad's so strong, he can pick up a table. <laughs> and I was like, is that strong? Is that like a folding table, a card table? Like, what are we talking about? Big table. You know, we want to say, like, that's my dad. Like, my dad can beat up your dad. My dad is better than your dad. I'm filled with courage, and I'm bold enough to say it because I know who my dad is. My dad's awesome. Like, Christians, your dad is this dad. Nothing compares with this. My father is the creator of everything. My father is the all-powerful ruler of everything he created. One day, my, my father will judge Every person who's ever lived, everyone who's ever existed, he's so wise. He not only knows what's going to happen in my life tomorrow, he's there. Like, that's my father. It's the richest and smartest being that exists. And that gives me courage to stand up and serve him. Not only does it fuel my heart to worship him, but it gives me courage to stand up and serve him. And that's the courage that we're going to need as Christians to function in the direction that our world is going now. That's the courage that we're going to need. We need that courage and that faith when we start asking ourselves, like, can God fix my marriage? Can I overcome this addiction? Can I fix this? Well, if you believe that God is big and brilliant and vast, if this is your father, then you'll say, yes, I can. So I want to just ask you, Is that your father? Is that your father? The only way you can have God as a father is because God sent his son, Jesus, to die on the cross so that sinners like me and you could be saved. Jesus came from heaven, lived a perfect, sinless life, and then offered himself as a sacrifice for sinners. And then he conquered death, came back to life, And now he's in heaven, ruling and reigning over his creation. And all those who trust in him get God as their father. Get to call him Abba. Like, that's my dad. You want that type of courage in your life? If you don't know Jesus, like, don't you want that? Don't you want that courage? This is the courage that filled Stephen. Like, this is the courage that had emboldened Stephen to preach the gospel and be stoned to death and forgive the people that were stoning him. This is the courage that emboldened the martyrs to like go to the stake and be burned alive for their faith. Their hearts were full of this courage because their minds were filled with these things. Do you want that? If you don't have it, trust in Jesus. Trust in Jesus today and you'll have God as your father. And Christians in the room, only minds informed that God is trustworthy, brilliant, and vast will lead to hearts inflamed with awe and courage and are able to overcome any obstacle. Let's pray. Father, almighty God, we come to you humbly this morning just in awe of your bigness, in awe of your kindness, in awe of your plan of salvation. God, we're just in awe of you. You are way bigger and way deeper way richer and wiser than we could ever imagine. You are worthy of our worship. You're worthy of our service. I just pray, God, that if anyone doesn't know you as Father in here, God, would you 
reveal that to them this morning? God, would you just show them that they're separated from you? And would you show them that you sent Jesus so that they could be reconciled to you and that they could have you as Father? God, for the Christians in the room, we just ask that you would help help us set patterns in our life to where our mind is constantly just informed with how awesome and wonderful and glorious you truly are so that our hearts will constantly have fuel to worship you and to serve you and to give you all of our lives. You're worth it. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Redeemer Church. If you want to connect with us at Redeemer, we would love for you to visit us at a service in person or visit us online at www.redeemermidland.org.